Would you pray with me? Well, Jesus, that is our prayer. We desire that we would see you face to face. Even this morning, we ask that you would open our eyes um, through the reading and preaching of your word, that you would reveal yourself to us, that we might be transformed even as we see you shining in glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I have been reading Willa Cather lately, a Nebraska author. I was told to understand my in-laws. She was the best pick. My family's from Nebraska. Her family's from Nebraska. So I've been reading Willa Cather, and the first or the second book of hers that I read was a book called O Pioneers. It tells the story of a young girl, as the book opens, named Alexandra, the eldest daughter of a family settling the Great Plains. When she's in her early teens, her father falls ill, takes a turn for the worst, and as her father lays dying, she's brought to her bedside, to his bedside. And he tells her that it is up to her, Alexandra, to keep the family afloat. Her brothers don't have the mind for it. Her mother isn't strong enough. Her youngest brother is still too young. It must be her. It must be her. He will tell her brothers to do whatever she says, but she must carry the world as it were. And so she does. She raises her brothers, keeps the farm going. After several lean years, it even begins to prosper. She starts buying up parcels of land adjacent to their property. And soon, her family's farm is one of the largest in the area. But still, she carries it all. And she's constantly exhausted. And every once in a while, when she collapses into bed at the end of the day, she finds herself in a vision And in this vision, she sees someone who's very strong standing over her bed and with his gentle arms lifts her up and carries her across the fields. At some point, she's brought back and laid to rest again. And for a moment, when she's held in those strong arms, she can rest from her work. But the vision fades as time goes on and her work gets harder. Even as the farm thrives, her life is slowly crushed by the burdens that press in around her. Her father dies, of course, when she's young, but then her siblings fight and the family fractures. The man that she loves leaves town trying to prove himself to earn a name that might be worthy of her affection. Friends leave, sell out and move away. One of her brothers is killed by a family friend. And one night soon after his death, she lies down to sleep wishing it could all be over, wishing she could be out of her body, wishing that she didn't have to feel this longing anymore, that she could let go of the longing that is never satisfied. And there Willa Cather describes this moment. As Alexandra lay with her eyes closed, she had again more vividly than for many years the old illusion of her girlhood, of being lifted and carried lightly by someone very strong. He was with her a long time this time and carried her very far, and in his arms she felt free from pain. When he laid her down on her bed again, she opened her eyes, and for the first time in her life, she saw him. Saw him clearly, though the room was dark and his face was covered. He was standing in the doorway of her room. His white cloak was thrown over his face and his head was bent a little forward. His shoulders seemed as strong as the foundations of the world. His right arm, bared from the elbow, was dark 
and gleaming like bronze, and she knew at once that it was the arm of the mightiest of all lovers. She knew at last for whom it was she had waited and where he would carry her. And that, she told herself, was very, very well. And then she went to sleep. Alexandra, as all else falls away, is given a vision. A vision to hold on to, a vision really to be held by, a vision that could carry her through the dark valley in which she found herself. We're turning our attention to the gospel lesson today, Matthew 17. In your bulletin, if you'd like to follow along, we'll be focusing on the gospel lessons from here until Easter. And in our gospel lesson this morning, the disciples, like Alexandra, have just begun to see everything that they loved, everything that they hoped in, begin to be stripped away. They've been walking with Jesus for a while now, years maybe, and they've seen his small ministry balloon into a movement. They've come to believe that this really might be the Messiah, this might be the one who's come to rescue Israel. But in the previous chapter to our reading, chapter 16, Jesus has begun to burst that bubble. He tells them that the salvation he will bring as the Messiah of Israel will come about only by his arrest, his trial, and his execution. He tells them that his ministry is on a collision course with a Roman cross, and far from seeking to avoid it, he will march deliberately toward it. And so for his disciples, that meant that everything they'd hoped, everything they dreamed, everything they thought was happening around Jesus was to be pulled out from under them. Peter actually tries to talk Jesus out of it. We're not going to let you die, Jesus. We'll fight for you. You're the Messiah, after all. But no, Jesus says, he rebukes Peter. The salvation will come through my suffering and death. This is the only way. And so where our passage picks up, in chapter 17, the disciples are understandably reeling. And this is the moment when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John hiking. They head up a high mountain, and on that mountain they are given a vision, a vision that can carry them, that will carry them through the dark valley that remained before them. Look with me at verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light. This is the moment known as the transfiguration. It's the moment we're celebrating today. Jesus begins to shine, to glow. I always think of radioactive something when I read this passage. Glory, power, splendor. This glowing, a sign of God's presence in the Old Testament. If not a sign of God's very person. This is what happens when Moses goes up the mountain in our Old Testament reading this morning. As he comes down, he comes down glowing, and glowing so bright he must cover his face, lest the Israelites be afraid. And then as if on cue, Moses himself shows up, and Elijah on the mountain. Two heroes of ancient Israel, two heroes that foretold the coming of the Messiah, two heroes of ancient Israel who spoke the word of God to his people, two heroes of ancient Israel who in their own day met with God on a mountain. And here Moses and Elijah are on a mountain speaking with Jesus. 
And the disciples are watching all this unfold. They're stunned. And they're probably quite terrified. Because if Moses and Elijah are on a mountain and Jesus is already glowing, that means God is very likely to show up next. And if God shows up on the mountain with them, they are in grave danger. A few years ago, I went backpacking with a friend of mine named Tyler in Colorado. We were hiking on the Continental Divide above the tree line, totally exposed. We'd been hiking all day, relatively clear skies, some clouds building on the horizon. Eventually, we got over the lake that we intended to camp at, looking down from the divide on this lake. Totally clear because there's no tree cover. And while we're looking down at this lake, there's suddenly a little thunder in the distance. And out of nowhere, it starts to sleet. Kind of a rain, icy mix that the mountaineers apparently call grapple. Grapple, which is a fun word. Now, I think this is pretty cool because I'm from South Carolina and we don't see snow or ice very often. And so I'm intrigued. But I look at Tyler, who's a mountain guide, and he clearly is not impressed. He does not think this is cool. His face is white and his eyes are wide. And he looks back at me and says, Drew, we need to get down the mountain now. And he, I, we're on the trail, which follows the divide with a lot of switchbacks down to the lake. He avoids all of those. He turns and walks straight down the side of the mountain, right, just down the, the slope. And so I follow and we have a long way down and we get to the bottom exhausted and beaten and bruised, collapse on the ground. What I didn't realize was that that grapple, that sleet-rain mixture at those elevations, means that there is a huge storm imminent, that it is about to blow. And when you're up there and the heavens open up with the wind and the ice and the lightning, you are in grave danger. At any moment, you could be blown off the cliff. You could be struck by lightning. You could build hypothermia in the rain. You could get lost. Tyler saw the grapple falling on the mountain. He knew what was coming, and so he got us to shelter. The disciples on a mountain with glowing Jesus, Moses, and Elijah know what's coming. And they are concerned because it is very possible that with these four signs present, that God may be about to show up. And if he does show up, they better find shelter quick. God repeatedly warns his people in the Old Testament that if they see him with the naked eye, they will die immediately. The human mind, fallen, fractured, finite, cannot absorb that kind of revelation, that kind of glory, that kind of holiness. When Moses met with God, he was hid in a cleft in the rock, and he still came down glowing. When Elijah met with God on the mountain, he started in a cave, and when God called him to the entrance, he wrapped his head with a mantle lest he accidentally see and die. Surely the disciples are beginning to fear that God might show up. As an aside, it's probably why Peter offers to build the three tents. He wants to build some kind of shelter, something to protect them from the vision of God's glory, from the imminent presence of God, but it's too late. Because even as Peter speaks, the cloud descends and the voice echoes from the heavens. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so the disciples fall on their faces, terrified. We're all going to die. 
we're all going to die. We shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be here with Moses, with Elijah, not with Jesus when he's glowing. We shouldn't be up here in the presence of God. Not without some kind of shelter. And as they lie there, you've got to imagine the words that they've just heard echoing through the mountain and ringing in their ears. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I mean, could they even process that sentence and their trembling? Could they even understand what those words did? If they did understand them, could they understand what they meant? Who is God's son? What would that even mean? Who is he talking about? Moses, the great giver of the law, leads his people out of Egypt. The founder of a nation. Could it be Elijah, the great prophet, so righteous before God, he's taken into heaven bodily and expected to come back in the end? Who is this son of God that the voice speaks of? And they're still lying there, trembling, covering their faces when they feel a hand gently touch their shoulders. And a softer voice perhaps says, get up. You don't need to be afraid. And when they do, when they look shakily up, verse 8, they see no one but Jesus only. And that at least answers one question that the disciples have. Who is this voice talking about? Who is the Son of God to whom they must listen? Jesus is the only one there in the end. The only one it could apply to. Of course, they would have known that if they had been at his baptism. These words were spoken over him then. The voice from the heavens was clearly talking about Jesus. Jesus, who is attested to by Moses and the law, by Elijah and the prophets. Jesus, who glowed before any sign of God's presence had arrived. Jesus, from whom light shone spontaneously, like it had shone in the very beginning of time. Jesus is the one the voice is speaking of, and then the four of them walk back down the mountain like nothing happened. And in fact, on the way down, Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this. Not until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now all this begs the question, why are the disciples given this vision? And why now? Why does Jesus take them up the mountain if they can't even talk about it yet? Why, given this vision now, they've already had the words spoken over him at his baptism, why do they need to hear the words again? Why does he need the affirmation of Moses and Elijah now? Wasn't everything that's happened up until this point enough? Why did the disciples need this vision now? I believe the disciples need this vision now because as they come down from this high, shining Mountain, they will be stepping into the lowest, darkest valley that creation had ever seen. Jesus did not come merely to talk about suffering and death, but to march into it. And so over the next days and weeks, Jesus, followed by his disciples, would do just that. Even as the disciples try to talk him out of it, Jesus, the Son of God, would tell them again and again that his death was imminent. So the disciples would watch as the religious leaders turned against him. They would watch as he was betrayed, as he's arrested and tried, beaten and found guilty and then beaten again. 
Disciples would watch as he is taken out by a long road to the hill and hung there. As all of this happens, as the disciples watch it all unfold, they need to know that even when it looks like everything is falling apart, Jesus is nevertheless the Son of God. They need to know that even when it looks like hope is lost, that there is no possibility of recovery, that Jesus remains the Messiah, is still the Lord, is still God himself. As all of this happens, the disciples need to know that when their Messiah looks weak and his failure and death look imminent, still they must listen to him because even then he remains God. Even then, he remains good. Even then, he is working. As all this happens, as all this happens, they need a vision that can carry them. And I think that's what they've been given on the mountain. I wonder this morning, if you find yourself in suffering so great that you cannot imagine how God could possibly still be good. How God could still be in control. How God could possibly be present to you. Maybe you have felt that before. Maybe you're feeling it now. A medical diagnosis. Friend or family member in trouble. Losing someone you love. Watching those you love walk away from the faith. In those moments, what we so desperately need is a vision. We need a vision that is strong enough to carry us through the fields. We need a reason to continue to listen to Jesus, to listen to him, even when his claims seem incredible, unbelievable for where we are and what we're experiencing. Even when our life seems far from him, we need a vision to cling to. And here the disciples are given a vision that they can trust and to listen to. A vision that reminds them to listen even as the night grows darker and the valley grows deeper. But if you know the story, you know even this vision won't be enough. Even still, the disciples of Jesus will abandon him. Even still, they'll cease to listen in despair. The disciples will need an even greater vision than the transfiguration, than the shining glory of of Christ to keep listening to Jesus till the end. They'll need a greater vision, and Jesus knows that. And he hints at it at the very end of our passage today. He says, they aren't to speak of this moment, this thing they've seen, this transfiguration, the epiphany of Christ and his eternal glory. They aren't to speak of it until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. See, even this vision won't be enough until an even greater vision is revealed until a vision of the Lord who would die and be raised for us is made clear to our eyes. Friends, that's the vision we come to this morning. It's the vision we come to in his word. It's the vision we come to in our prayers and our song. It's the vision we come to above all in the bread and the wine. Here we are given a vision of a face shining like the sun, a vision of clothes radiantly white, a vision of the outstretched arms of the mightiest of lovers who carries us and who will carry us 
Friends, we can trust him. This is the son of God, no matter what we are facing in our lives. This is the one who has pleased the father, the one who has done and is doing precisely what must be done for our good and for this world. Friends, today, listen to him. Listen to him, even in the dark. Feel his hand on your shoulders. Hear him say, listen, rise and have no fear. For if our Lord rises, so will we. Amen.